0: For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him... Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Quote, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning, Hope Church. It's uh, always a joy to be here with you and to preach the word of God to you. Uh, You are a congregation that listens intently and with enthusiasm, and that's always a blessing for the preacher. So thank you for your ministry to me as I minister to you by the grace of God. Um, I bring you greetings this morning from Peace Community Church, a smaller Christian Reformed Church on the west side of Houston, a little further north than here. as Anita mentioned, we were all at uh, Classis uh, Friday and Saturday. And I would just want to share something with you from Classis. We now have four or five Hispanic church plants. And the day is coming, I think, when the Classis meetings will need to be translated sim- uh, simultaneously into Spanish and English. And given the city that we live in, in this part of the country, that is just tremendous. God is on the move in uh, Classis Rocky Mountain. And uh, God's people are being reached out to by in uh, Spanish and English and Korean. And uh, there was even a French-speaking pastor from Dallas who is in our class this now, uh, Jean-Pierre Mukendi. So um, maybe we'll have triple translation. I don't know. Um, that's, uh, that's very exciting, very exciting. So uh, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. I'll be reading to you from 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 29. And the setting is, David is an old man. And he is about to die. And this is kind of his parting speech uh, from 1 Corinthians. uh, Sorry, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stones and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir. 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings. For the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, "'Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom.'" You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are the strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight. As were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, The God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and delights and thoughts in the heart of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down prostrating themselves before the Lord and the King. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to look at this final speech of David and look at it from the perspective of David passing the baton on to Solomon and also telling us how the people of God would have to live in order to continue to enjoy the blessing and presence of God in their personal lives and in their lives as a nation, And then we'll see that the promise of how that would actually be fulfilled is in a person. And then at the end, i will get a little bit practical with some practical suggestions about um, how this passage applies to us in the 21st century here in the Houston Metroplex. So let's start with passing the baton. David is old. There's a problem here. David is old and Solomon is young and inexperienced. Under David's reign, the people of God had enjoyed unprecedented prosperity, unity, and most particularly joy, joy in the presence of God. You remember that David was God's man. David danced before the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart. He had his faults. In fact, he had terrible sins that plagued him in his later years. But he was God's man. And now he was going to die. And surely those who were younger than David, who were anticipating the transition to the reign of Solomon, had a certain amount of anxiety about that, a certain amount of fear. Who will be Israel's connection to God? That's the next uh, slide. Who will be the bridge person? Now, we, uh, many of us have experienced this. You recently went through a pastoral change as Pastor Roger retired. I'm sure there was a certain amount of vibrating that happened with that. Who's going to come next? Who will, I mean, there's no one quite like Pastor Roger, and I, I, I can affirm that as a friend of his. He's, he is quite a man of God, is he not? And uh, so um, a lot of pressure on Pastor Greg and a certain amount of anxiety in the congregation. Perhaps it's been, it was one of your, one of your parents, your, your godly mother or your grandmother, who was that connection person for you to God. And when they passed away or became ill, you wondered, who, who will be there for me? Who will teach me about God? Who will pray for me now? Who will be there to remind me of the promises of God? Perhaps it's a counselor, a godly counselor, who has been able to uh, help you reframe your thinking in terms of the promises and the covenant of God so that you see things a little bit more from God's perspective and you're not crushed by fear and anxiety. So this is the question. Here's the problem. Who's going to continue on with the legacy of David? Who's going to be Israel's bridge, as it were, to God? And David knows about this problem, and so he makes preparation. He prepared to build the temple. The temple. He gives... Uh, I, I can't imagine what the, this amount of gold and silver and, and fine woods would be worth in 21st century American currency. It's got to be millions perhaps, perhaps billions. I don't know. It's, it's a huge amount of giving. But it's not going to be a monument to David. It doesn't have a little cornerstone. that says, this temple is dedicated to our great forefather and founder, David. It's a temple built by Solomon, Built for God, and what 's important about the temple, besides the priestly duties happening there and the beauty of the temple, what an exquisitely beautiful building with its its maroons, its blues its, uh, its pomegranates its its capitals its, its silver covering. The most important thing about the temple is that it was the the, the ark's resting place. this is where God's presence on earth would dwell. This is in chapter 28, which is actually the beginning part of the speech is actually 28 and 29. King David rose to his feet and said, "Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, for the footstool of our God." The ark Remember, the ark is a beautiful golden box. It has a massive slab of gold on top of it called the mercy seat. And on top of that are the two angels, the the cherubim who are leaning forward like this. And above that mercy seat, the very presence of God dwelt in Israel. It is the footstool of God. On that mercy seat annually on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on top of it to atone for the sins of the people. And there the Shekinah glory of God dwelt in a most powerful and wonderful way. I want you to think a little bit about the Ark. If you've you've read the story of David, and David's biography, by the way, is in a couple of books. It's in 1 and 2 Samuel as well as 1 Chronicles. It's, I think, preparing us for the the way the Gospels come to us. Four different accounts with one similar story, one one historical event focused on to give us different witnesses and different testimony. And here in 1 Chronicles, um, we learn about the Ark here at the end, but also in 1 Samuel, And going back further than that, the book of Joshua, you remember that when they marched into the land of Canaan to take the land back for the Lord, they marched around Jericho six days, and on the seventh day they marched around seven times and they blew the trumpets. Do you remember what they were carrying as they marched around the walls? They were carrying the ark, the very presence of God, into the land. Years later, when Samuel was born... And Eli and his corrupt sons were the high priests and the priests. The Israelites went into battle against the Philistines, and 4,000 men were died, died, and so they had this plan. They didn't realize, they didn't think about the fact that it was their sin that had brought this misery on them. They thought, we don't have the magic object. We don't have the special uh, divine power box with us. Let's get the Ark and take it into battle, and we'll surely defeat our enemies. Well, do you recall what happened? 30,000 men died when they tried to mess around with the ark. 30,000 Israelites were carrying the ark. By the way, it's fascinating that later on when David goes to get the ark and bring it back to the city of David, how many men were sent? 30,000. I think he was saying, you took 30,000 before, Lord? We're willing again to die to bring the ark back to your place. And of course, only Uzzah died. So 30,000 men died, and the Philistines ended up in, with possession of the ark. They had it in their land, and they found out it was a bad deal. They got uh, bubonic plague, it appears. They had tumors. They had rats. Uh, people died. It was, it was, the plague fell upon them. You see, sometimes when you have the ark, it's life-giving. Remember that when they took it to uh, Abinadab's house? I think it was, yeah. Uh, his crops flourished. The, the sheep and the goats, you know, reproduced, and, and it was just a fabulous thing. Other times you have it and you get tumors and rats and people die. What is that about the ark? What is there about the ark that is both so life-giving and also so deadly? I think God is teaching us through the story of the ark that God can't be put in a box, God is not a genie, you know, where you rub the the lantern and you make a wish and you get your three wishes. God is not like that. God is not a cosmic vending machine. You go to church, you say your prayers, you try to obey the commandments, and then God gives you what you want. That kind of thinking is still common amongst us in our heart of hearts. If we're honest, at times we have these kinds of objections. We don't exactly dare to bargain out loud with God quite like that. But here's what we do. In our hearts, we think, Lord, if uh, I will obey you if you give me blank. If you give me this thing that I most want. We put a condition on it. I will, fill you, I will obey you if you do this, you fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Well, the truth of the matter is, whatever we put in that blank is our real God. It's what's most important to us. That's the thing we can't live without. That's our idol. So this conditional obedience that we sometimes do is, it's not something new. It's right back here in this ancient story, the same kind of thinking. The truth of the matter is that no object... No sacrament, as wonderful as the sacraments are, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table today and and be blessed through that process, but no sacrament or person, no object, no behavior, no doctrinal orthodoxy, none of those can automatically convey to us the grace of God. Grace, the presence of God, the blessing of God is a gift. It is a sheer unmerited gift. Now, having warned you about the dangers of magical thinking, I do need to, to also point out to you that there are some necessary practices that David says here about how the people of God will experience the power and presence and peace of God in their lives as individuals and in their life as a nation. David gives some instruction to his son Solomon and the leaders, and there, there are four or three things that David says. If we go to verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 8, David says to the leaders, So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord our God. So the first thing he says is follow all the commands of the Lord. The implication is follow them without conditions. When God says to do it, do it. That's what's expected. That's what it takes in order to experience the presence and power of God. And then he says in the next verse, serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. Serve him with wholehearted devotion. So not only, don't just obey the Lord, but do it gladly. Do it willingly. Do it with a mind that is delighted to do these things, to obey the commandments of God. So as we go through these, these necessary practices, we're finding they're getting more and more intense, more and more demanding, and more and more inward. The first one is to obey the commands. Now the second one is to serve him with, a whole, with wholehearted devotion. And then finally, uh, in chapter 29, verse 5, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today, David asks the leaders. So to consecrate yourself to the Lord is to devote every part of all that you are to God. You're not just obeying. You're not even just having a a mind that's willing. You've you've dedicated your hands and your feet, your sexual organs, your your brain, your eyes, everything about you, you have consecrated and turned over to God. Like it says in Romans 6, you have offered up the members of your body in service to God. Now, now, following the command, serving him wholeheartedly, consecrating ourselves to the Lord. Did Solomon do this? No. We know that Solomon failed. Neither Solomon nor his descendants did these things. And we cannot. And we will not. You remember that in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11... The Lord gives Ezekiel a vision. The people of God are in exile in Babylon. They're coming back. And Ezekiel's given this vision of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, being taken off, off the temple and going away and never coming back. And it is indeed the case that when they come out of exile, they don't have the ark anymore. It's been lost to history. No ark, no no mercy seat, no place for the the glory of God, the glory of God departs from the temple and it's never the same again. That's because the promise of the presence of God cannot be fulfilled by the ark and by the mercy seat. The promise is fulfilled in person. The promise is in person. Chapter 28 God says to David, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever. Forever. Now, is that just long live the king, may the king live forever, kind of hyperbole, you know, exaggeration, the sort of things you say to kings to keep them happy, keep them from cutting off your head? No, this is God speaking to David. God is promising, your descendant will live, will sit on the throne forever. Centuries later, a man walks into the temple precincts in Israel. And he says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. Jesus is David's son. Yet David's Lord. He is the promise keeper, the promise fulfiller. David is a man of violence. Solomon is an idolater. And all the kings, even the best of the kings, has something not quite right with them. Only Jesus can fulfill those conditions to follow all the commands of the Lord, serve Him with wholehearted devotion, consecrate Himself completely to the Lord. Jesus, as it were, earned and invited the presence of God into his life by his obedience. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, instead of experiencing always the presence of God, he experienced on the cross the absence of God. He was worthy of, deserved, was welcoming of the presence of God. Instead, he Received the absence of God for us and our salvation, the absence of God that we had earned by our fickleness, by our cold-heartedness, by our lack of consecration was poured out on him, and he said, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me And the darkness descended on him. He was the one whose blood was as it were, shed and poured onto the heavenly mercy seat of God in the very presence of God, instead of the earthly model, that box that you could carry around on sticks. He is the one who fulfills the promise that God made to David. He is David's legacy, if you will. Of all the things that David gave us, being the great-great-great-great-granddaddy of Jesus is the most important. Let me, uh, in light of these things, let me get practical with you for a, a few moments. If it's true that through a new and living way through his flesh, Jesus has opened up entrance into the very presence of God in heaven and through his blood has completely cleansed all our sins so that we are righteous in God's sight, then I think in prayer we are probably settling too little. Settling for too little. I mean, we pray for grandma, and and, uh, we just recently had a a, a grandson that was born six weeks premature, so of course we prayed for the baby a lot, that he would be able to breathe regularly and so on. And it took a long time, but he did. And those are important prayers. Don't don't, uh, mistake me. But aren't, aren't we not to be asking for God's grace and God's kingdom to cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea? Should we not be asking for our nation and the nations of the world to bow in repentance before King Jesus so that families and neighborhoods and cities can be restored so that people will stop shooting each other so that there will be peace on earth? We don't ask for enough sometimes. We need to remember, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. I speak to myself in this matter just as much as any of you. My prayers tend to be a little stunted We're settling for too little. Another practical uh, implication that comes more directly from the text is radical generosity. It's possible to give generously to the work of God, you see, very generously, lavishly, but without giving yourself. You can write a check. You can write a big check to a good cause. But if you don't give your own self to God, that's not quite it. Conversely, it is impossible for you to give yourself to God wholeheartedly, devotedly, with all your being and not be generous. They always go together. There's always an effect in the believer's heart of a desire to give back to God because of the lavish grace given to us in Jesus Christ. So it's possible to give without giving your, give money without giving yourself, but it's impossible to give yourself without giving of your time, talents, and treasures. And finally, and I love the name of your church, Hope Church. Let me just tell you just one little story about hope in a dark world. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in my office and a woman came in, a young woman, her name was Lisa. Tears were streaming down her face. She had been in a marriage in which she had been abused emotionally, physically, and spiritually. By spiritually, I mean her husband said to her things like, you are not a very good wife. You must not be a Christian. Now, that is the devil's work, is it not? She was broken. I, could, I, I was overwhelmed. It was like sticking my finger in 220 power. I was just shocked what to say, what to do. So I, I, I pointed her to Jesus. I reminded her of the Savior's love. I said, your acceptance as a child of God doesn't have anything to do with how good a wife you are. It has to do with everything with Jesus. I tried to do that. It I, you know, wasn't very successful, humanly speaking. Maybe some seeds were planted, but this is what we have, brothers and sisters. You, you might not think about it, but you, dear friends, are bearers of the Christ. You have the message of reconciliation in your hearts and minds. You and not everyone else does. You have a high calling. You can go into the world in your particular stations or callings or home situations. You are the ones who can speak words of grace, speak words of reconciliation, speak words of... I can't do that for you. Preachers can't do be everywhere at all the time. You're the ones that are out there in the trenches. So don't forget that you have a high calling, that you have work to do, that you are present there to do and to speak the word of God into people's lives. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus has become the temple of God. And we are living stones being built into that temple. And we have received the Holy Spirit. And God's love can never be taken from us. Though the fires of hell breathe against us, we are safe in Jesus. And what a message that is to this world with all its darkness, with its, its violence, its corruption, its chaos. You, you are the ones. Don't forget, dear people of God, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus But because of Jesus, you can do it. You can do it. So keep your eyes open this week. And come back next week and tell each other, Oh, I had an opportunity and I took it. I spoke what needed to be heard. I did what needed to be done. And if you do, you'll bring a smile to this old preacher's face. But you will also bring joy to the angels in heaven and a smile to your Heavenly Father. And what could be better than that? What could be better than that? Amen. Let us pray. Father, today we have gathered in worship, and we have acknowledged that um, we are sinners. But we have also acknowledged with grateful hearts that your grace is enough for us. In fact, it is more than enough. It is lavish and abundant. And you've called us to be your children. And You've called us to be your witnesses. And you've called us to reach out and build up the temple of God with more living stones who are yet to be converted, yet to be saved, yet to be brought into the family of God. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for your mercy.